Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working on film and television from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about 2019's Ford v. Ferrari, directed by James Mangold and starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. High-level plot summary, it's the 1960s, and just like the title explains, Ford wants to defeat Ferrari at Le Mans. Hijinks ensue. This movie is still in theaters, and I strongly recommend you see it on the big screen. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter comes in at 92%, and the critics' consensus reads, Ford v. Ferrari delivers all the polished auto-action audiences will expect and balances it with enough gripping human drama to satisfy non-racing enthusiasts. My guests today are crew from the film. First, returning to the show is Steve Morrow, sound mixer. Steve, welcome back. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, Steve, I looked over IMDb before we hopped on, and it appears that 2020 is going to be another banner year for you. I think you have like four films with projected release dates. Uh, that's right. Yep. We have uh, Ghostbusters coming out, and uh, which is a, a part three from the original two. And then uh, a Harley Quinn movie and a Ben Affleck basketball movie and uh, another musical coming up. Oh, it should be a good year. We'll, we'll watch for your stuff. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thank you. And another returning guest, Robert Folks, location manager. Rofo, nice to see you again. Great to be here again. So, Rofo, tell me, what have you been working on? Uh, yeah, another uh, few L.A. projects again. Did a uh, first couple episodes of a Ryan Murphy show, Ratchet, that's coming out based on One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, did a movie called Covers with Dakota Johnson and Tracy Ellis Ross for uh, Universal Working Title. And about to start on a... Uh, Crazy uh, six-part uh, biopic about Angeline. If you don't know who she is, look her up, and uh, your eyes will go wide open. <laughs> well, that should be fun. You are doing quite a lot of L.A. work these days. You, any chance of getting getting out of town again, Rofa? It's uh, You're becoming an uh, L.A. specialist. Yeah, maybe. The, yeah, I like that. I like to be able to work in town, and there's always uh, fun locations to uncover, and doing period things is always fun, too. A challenge, but uh, but yeah, I'd like to go out of town on the next one if possible. We'll see how that works out. Well, good luck. Ford v. Ferrari, let's turn our attention to that. First, give me a sense of what the project was like coming together. When did each of you get involved? I got involved pretty much right at the beginning of production. I was just coming off of The Mule uh, with Clint Eastwood, and we, my wife and I packed up a, um, a truck full of equipment and drove it from New Mexico to uh, Willow Springs. Uh, the Saturday before we started shooting on the Monday mm. and uh, dropped off the gear and, and showed up kind of on day one and, and started from that point forward. Uh, so that's, that's, I mean, we were hired, you know, well in advance, but uh, it was definitely, you know, we just kind of uh, rolled off of one show onto another. What about you, Rofo? Wow. The opposite experience in terms of when you start <laughs> for a location <laughs> manager. Actually, this one was interesting because it was going to be a, uh, Georgia, pretty much not not an all Georgia production, but um, a lot of it had started to be scouted there. But then the uh, California tax incentives kicked in and it kind of reversed. It became almost all based out of Los Angeles and surrounding area locations. Uh, ultimately, Georgia was still part of the sh part of the production for a couple of weeks um, for mainly the Le Mans roads and some of the track. And then there was one day in France, which I wasn't a part of. Yeah, so I actually came in to be, I was uh, asked to find five or six of the LA area locations that they knew they wanted to do, because a lot of it took place in LA and surrounding areas with Carol Shelby and all that. But then suddenly it was, uh, don't just 
find those five or six locations and lock them in, get all, you know, 25. <laughs> wow. And so you had done scouting in Georgia and they used some of it, as you said, for the roads and uh, such. They, but, had an, uh, they had another Georgia location manager on because they had already narrowed down a racetrack there that they liked that you guys ended up shooting at too. I guess you were there, Steve. It was kind of weird. That, product, that was all during, they ended up actually doing the Georgia stuff second unit while we were doing first unit. And, and yeah, there was, there was there. no sound in Georgia. Yeah, it was just all. Oh, there was no sound at all anyway. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah, well, that just shows how amazing the sound is in this movie <laughs> when you're watching it, knowing there wasn't anyone standing at any of those 11 days, I think, in Georgia. But yeah, so that person stayed on, that manager stayed on and handled the, that they were already looking for there. I did attempt to find roads in California to take advantage of the incentive, incentive to do the Le Mans roads, but nothing beat the green Georgia. It just felt, they just went back to those. So uh, they still did that. Yeah. And so they did second unit in Georgia, but then, so I, I saw that there were 67 filming days, but you think most of that was then in California. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, actually, it's well, actually, yeah, I guess that's interesting. I didn't think about that. But yeah, with 67 days, we were still shooting first unit while second unit was in Georgia. And going back and looking at the schedule again, but yeah, so I guess it was, it was a full 67 here and then simultaneously 11 or 12 there or something like that. Tell me more about shooting on racetracks. Yeah, I mean, the Le Mans portion of the, the race took place in Georgia as second unit, other than Pit Row. Pit Row was... Here in Aqua Dulce Airport, they built this uh, incredible set that's three stories tall and, what, 500 feet long. And so that, that was the portion that we did all the dialogue in the pits. But, but basically, just the Le Mans race was shot second unit. You know, the countryside road and, and the tight turns around the, the hay bales and things like that. Uh, the rest of it, we shot first unit around Los Angeles. So some of it's on the Porsche test track. Some of it was... Uh, well, uh, Auto, Club, Auto Club Speedway was Daytona um, in terms of the racing scenes. And, and, and obviously there's a lot of cars uh, racing, racing in quotes out at LAX Airport, which was the location, but we shot it in Ontario. So there's lots of driving things that took place in LA uh, besides the uh, Le Mans track once you left the pits, like Steve was saying. So you built a set for the pits and then Unbelie Unbelievable had... set. Tell Unbelievable me more about set. that. I, I, during halfway through the building of it, I was like, is anyone doing, setting up a camera showing the, you know, the fast motion, you know, that great stuff where you see something being built. And I was like, I don't know if anyone did that, but I feel like uh, our production designer deserves uh, a nomination if somebody watched that video, if they made it. Uh, it, it was an incredible sight to see this, va not vacant, it's an active field, but just a big blank dirt next to a track suddenly becoming like Steve said, like a 500 foot set. Amazing. And they also had to, they also had to make it, you know, very much like a pit, you know, at a racetrack, they had to, to put in pylon six feet deep, you know, to make sure that if somebody did crash, you know, off of the racetrack, cause they would be flying by pit row at a hundred and 120 miles an hour in these cars. And so if somebody did lose control, they wouldn't wipe out the entire crew. So they had, you know, safety barriers drilled into the ground six feet deep all the way down the pit yeah. row. So when you see the concrete blocks that they're leaning on and things like that, those are actual pieces of safety for everybody. Uh, so that was, you know, it's just an impressive feat to build that uh, for the film. And where yeah. was this? Where, where was this set built? It's, it's Agua Dulce Air Park. And 
uh, well, just the, just the deciding on where to build this was interesting. I mean, it really kind of dragged on and bopped around between a few different ideas. When I first came on, um, just some preliminary thinking, they were thinking of a, um, an abandoned airfield down in Irvine next to these fairgrounds. And there's some hangars down there, which were starting to be torn down. And I mean, the kind of the idea was, oh, there's a hangar there we can maybe use for LAX, but then you can build the the Le Mans there, and maybe you can even do some of the LAX scenes there. It was kind of the first thing I went down to look at, but the reality, again, was that uh, it was way too torn up, and they were starting to tear things down. It just ended up not being ideal. It was also just outside of the zone. But then we started to think of Pomona Fairgrounds. We needed a big, actually looking back on it, it was, I said, well, how long, How you need to gain speed to go flying past the pits, like Steve was saying, then you have to slow down and then turn around and come back again. Um, I said, well, how long does this need to be? And at one point they'd said, they even did like mathematically how to scientifically, how far, how fast a car goes in the side of it. It needed to be 3,500 feet long of just, just clear for the car to gain speed, drive past the set and then, and then, and then slow down and turn and come back. So that limited a lot of choices <laughs> on where you could actually do that. And you had to own it for at least three months because you figure in, in reality, we were at Agua Dulce for four but at least the, the prep shoot strike of it all. And uh, should it be on an actual highway that we closed down somewhere out in Agua Dulce or Lancaster, get a stretch of road, it wasn't wide enough. It needed to be 50 feet wide. You, what are you gonna tear up all the curbs along the side if it had a curb? Uh, it's also dirt and some, you know, it, so many different factors made us narrow down certain things and it really had to be Agua Dulce. It was just too perfect, but then trying to convince them to let us own their airport that does have you know private flyers have hangers there and they want to land and take off and and but ultimately through a series of meetings Agua Dulce came through and, and that's where we were. So you're building it with actual safety in mind so it's much more permanent than just a facade that we often set up for film. Does that mean it's still there or did it come down when you guys were done just well as quickly as it went up? No, it had, it, had, it had to come down and, you know, it takes a while to even tear it down. So we're still there for a while. Um, yeah, and then there had to be some repaving and repainting of the runway, uh, just like we had to do in the beginning of it. We had to then put it back and uh, just clean everything up. That's a long chunk of time to be in one piece of property. So it's a big cleanup. And about how many days then of filming was on this set? I believe it was 11 or 12. I think it was more, yeah. Like well, well definitely with second weeks. unit. Second unit did a lot still, but our yeah, maybe it was maybe it was more up to two, up to two. We also were able to. What's nice about Agua Dulce? Ultimately, we we were able to rent out at additional costs, which kept adding up. Additional <laughs> got used their hangers there because uh, there was also a, a restriction which bummed everybody out. But it still became the best place to do this was we couldn't shoot all night long, and there were the the night rain sequence. You needed to do some night stuff. Uh, the red surrounding residents were worried about noise and lights, and they were already kind of bummed out about how much filming takes place out there just for normal scenes and normal movies and TV shows. So, but what was nice, we were able to still be on property and do some things in the hangars there and set up some stuff in there so we could still be on property, taking advantage of making the day. And, and, but we had to be out of there at midnight every night. It was, it was tough. Normally, you'd want to just shoot some all-nighters and get out of there and do all the night stuff and be done with it but it had to be spread out over I don't remember how many days but you had to kind of spread it out. So on the hangars you built other sets uh, interiors or just some of the other filming that had to be done or was it specific 
Yes, uh, Steve, do you remember what we finally just, I think we ended up putting that engine in there and then also some close-ups on Christian Bale. I think some yeah, things we, came we, up where we, we, we ended up being happy that they were there for different things, I remember. We were at Christian's house, you know, actually on location and we, there was a few shots I wanted to add later on that we didn't have time to get while we were on that location. So they built, you know, partial mm, wall right. sets and things like that. Uh, also things to do inserts with, so that was the stuff we did in the hangar. I'm trying to think what else we did in there. Were there close-ups of him driving, just a few things of him driving, or did they try to get all those shots of him outside? No, we, or? Yeah, we did all the driving stuff on, if it was at Aqua Dulce, it would be on the, on, on the road at, at speed. Um, okay. Or, or yeah. I guess on the, on the runway at speed, right? So that we did that there. We also did the inside of the uh, airplane that Matt Damon flies into the Mustang reveal. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, not necessarily inside the hangar, but right outside the hangar. We did that there. So all the interiors of the, the guys holding on for dear life. Yeah, just to have the room to do that out there ended up being kind of icing on the cake for things that came up as we went along. Well, talk to me more about filming those uh, pit scenes uh, Steve, I imagine there's specific audio challenge on this because you are literally driving cars by for quite a bit of it and they're making quite a bit of noise or are you guys cheating that somehow? Tell me more. Well, about we it. would, we would cheat it when we could, but uh, honestly we would, uh, a lot of the time you would want the cars driving by at a hundred miles an hour so that you could have the eye lines watching, you know, everybody in the, in the same speed watching, you know, um, the cars driving by. Uh, we would ask them to, you know, get up to speed before they hit pit row and take the foot off the gas and not coast through, but just make it all the way through without really hitting the gas. The cars weren't built for sound. They were built for speed. They're also not the, you know, original 1960s cars. So they were, some of them were modified Corvette engines. Some of them were modified Volkswagen engines. You know, they just had different sounds than you hear in the film. So we would try to protect the dialogue as much as possible. Our job production-wise, was just to get the dialogue the best we could to tell the story of these two guys' friendship. So knowing that in post-production, the, all the post-mixers would re-record all the cars and put in the authentic sounds because they would have, you know, a week of, of recording all, all these original cars so that they can make the race scenes and, and the, the movie more dynamic that way. Uh, our goal was just to get the dialogue as clean as we could. Um, and anything that really overlaps a modern engine Dialogue-wise, they had to re-record the whole thing, or at least just add the engine, you know, the the authentic engine over top of it. So, the challenges were were big in that sense, and also the the schedule was tight for that kind of a movie. So there wasn't waiting. You're not going to wait for the perfect take sound-wise. You're going to just make sure you have the movie in a can and fix it later if you need to. But I think we were pretty pretty fortunate in the way that most of the movie turned out sound wise uh, on the production side of it, because we were able to get really nice, clean dialogue and the, the parts where the engines were really, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's a challenge recording inside of a race car while Christian Bale's driving around. And, you know, some of the pressure was taken off in the sense that we knew that most likely would have to be re-recorded in, in uh, post-production because the engines weren't authentic and they really wanted to make a race car movie as real as it could be because they knew that there were going to be a lot of uh, GT40 fans. And if you just do it wrong, you know, <laughs> the audience is going to know. And so, and they're going to give you hell for it. So you want to make sure that those are all real. And so if you needed to replace the dialogue inside the car, you know, because of the engine noise is incorrect, that's not, 
an issue on the production side of it. It was just, you know, the engine's wrong. So we have to replace all the sound in that moment. So the pressure's off, but you still, you try to do the best you can because you're just not 100% sure what the plan is for post-production. Uh, but that was, you know, that was what we had to do. So we bought, we bought specific microphones just for the inside of the cars uh, because of the loud decibel, you know, level of the cars. The cars are going to be extremely loud. And uh, most microphones can't handle that kind of air pressure. And so we had to buy specific types of microphones just to be able to record dialogue inside the cars. Now, that's interesting, Steve. Did you, have you done that kind of car work before that you were aware of these microphones or this something you get the call and you have to do the research or test it to figure it out? Because that's, that's, is quite a challenge that if you're not prepared for it, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we did a movie a few years ago, uh, a remake of Chips, right? It was a Warner Brothers movie based on the TV show. And, you know, the, the director on that, Dak Shepard, he wanted all the dialogue when they're on the motorcycles to be real. So we did a lot of research in how loud, you know, can they talk right next to their microphone, um, things of that nature. So, yeah, you just go out and you look at what the, you know, the specs are in some of these microphones. It's, there's nobody you can call and say, hey, how did you guys record you know, dialogue in a GT40? You know, so you, you basically just have to make it up as you go and, and uh, you do some research and see what microphones can handle what decibel levels and you go from there and then you do some tests. Most of the time you're just doing it in your own house, you know, screaming into a microphone and seeing how it sounds. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was just kind of how we approached it. And, it, and it, after the first couple takes, we, you know, you listen back and you go, oh yeah, that's, that's working out perfect. So that's what we ended up doing. Just the challenges that each department faces that, you know, I'm not aware what Steve's going through over there when the cars are going by. And I'm the one having to tell the neighbors these aren't going to be real sounding race cars because that was their big, you're not going to be running race car. They all know what they sound like. They probably go to the races. They know what they sound like. They know their horses are going to be spooked. They know their dogs will be barking and freaking out. And I tell them these aren't real. They're going to be made to sound more real later. <laughs> yeah. And we also had the same challenge, you know, to, to talk about how, you know, how do you transmit the sound? from inside the race car to Video Village where the director and the producers and everybody else watches when the car is going 110 miles an hour down, you know, 3,500 feet of, of uh, airfield. So they brought out the microwave guys who microwave transmit video. And we came up with a system that you can embed the audio into the video signal and transmit that back as well to us. And so as long as there was video image on the, the director's monitor, you'd have sound. So that's kind of how we did that so we could broadcast the sound, you know, on top of the, the video signal. And then everybody at Village Village could watch it and, you know, Christian could take notes or get notes from the director and, and things of that nature. Well, that's interesting. So with the driving stuff, and I guess it becomes self-evident when you talk about speeding along the track, there's not actually a follow car then. They're not following close or have some sort of camera vehicle that is trying to you stay with the a, hero car. Yeah. Can you imagine a pass van at 110 miles an hour down a <laughs> runway? <laughs> you know, with antennas sticking out. <laughs> Everybody holding on for dear life. <laughs> yeah, no, all, all the race car stuff uh, the, in, in pre-production, I think they were testing different wireless systems and they just brought in uh, this guy named Noodles. You know, he's been around forever and he does, he's kind of the expert on wireless video via you know, microwave, he'll set up, it looks like a cell tower up on a, on a giant uh, cherry picker and he'll be able to get the, the video, you know, like when we're in Willow Springs, I mean, that racetrack is a pretty long racetrack and he was able to get video of whatever we were filming the entire round of the racetrack. So if you had a follow vehicle at some point you'd be lapped, right. And it just wasn't going to work out. 
so they, uh, yeah, so they invested and, and made sure they had the right tool for that so that everybody could see and hear. And, uh, and it worked out really well. An area that's clearly not under your responsibility, but I am curious about how background worked for some of these race scenes. Like, were there hundreds and hundreds of people then in these stands or did you film it tighter? Like, how did that, how did that work for you guys? Well, for, for the, at least for onset at the Le Mans pit, everything that was on pit row, the pit row side, that was all real. All those people in the stands were real. On the opposite side, that was a, the, the grandstand was a blue screen on the day. So there was nobody there. It was just a, a giant wall of blue screen. But yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the AD department really jumped in and made sure that everybody had something to do, you know, all the other teams, because they had to manage all the other race teams so that they're not just a bunch of guys standing around looking at their feet. And, uh, and they, you know, we let the, the crowds clap and cheer and we, we let them do their thing. You know, when it was uh, disruptive to specific dialogue, we made sure that they were quiet. But for the most part, if there was something exciting happening, we wanted them to, to participate. Yeah, I would think with the pit crews then also, because they're specialized, they're not just standing around. I mean, there's some actions that they're carrying out. Or, or Do you know if these folks actually knew the business or they're just, they just well acting? I think for the most part, they're well acting. I mean, some of the, some of the guys in the, you know, Ford pit team were, you know, stunt drivers and stunt guys because they would have to be around cars flying in and, you know, they just had to be well aware of their surroundings. So I think, I think that was probably the majority, like probably the, the Ferrari pit team was similar. Um, And then the rest of the teams down the row, you know, who you don't really see that much, you know, were probably just specialized background, but, yeah, I'm sure that they were given some amount of, you know, from the AD team, you know, here's what you do when a car comes in, you know, move the gas line over, you know, you, you give them the basics of how to to look authentic and, and then you adjust every take and make sure that they do something different or better or, you know, you know, your standard AD direct in the background. Well, I want to talk about one of the other challenges of the film and that to me would be recreating the 1960s. Rofo, for you on the locations, you finding places where we can come in and build um, these older looking sets or are you trying to find things that still have sort of a 1960s flavor? Well, one of the, the biggest challenges just in terms of trying to fulfill the way uh, James Mangold wanted the layout of Ken Miles' house in his garage, you know, you need, you need all the houses to look believable or easy without a lot of money to make them look believable for 1960s, but then also have this perfectly situated period correct auto body shop <laughs> that you can see preferably at an angle kind of the what we ended up with i mean there were certain ones where maybe there was an interesting auto body shop next to his house but then you're sort of forced to shoot it in a way where it's kind of just a straight on you know west anderson symmetry of the thought we want to be able to and and what's nice is you watch the movie and you see how much that the, the angles were taken advantage from the garage looking back at the house i mean it's actually in dialogue he points over at the uh, station wagon they're on the porch looking over at the garage you can see the uh, the period correct market in the background on six or seven different shots, things like that. That's rewarding when you see the reason why you were trying to find something specific ended up uh, making it into the movie and felt like, like the right choices. We had to take an entire uh, fencing around that. That was actually the back of the audio shop that faces the house, which was a big, ugly, distracting black wrought iron fence that wrapped around the entire back of it. So that had to be removed. So you can, you can really tie in the house with the garage. And the fight scene in front adds some lawn. So uh, Matt Damon and Christian Bale aren't landing on 
the sidewalk. They're landing on some lawn. And a, in, a, in a rubber curb, you know, the, the in a rubber curb, you curb. take out the yeah, yeah, handicap ramps are always fun. You know, they didn't have those. Oh, you know, right. So to make them, make <laughs> right. That look, if something's in the background, I've seen them take that out with VFX, you know, a, a, a ramp. And that was right next to where they were. So that all got resituated. But yeah, no, they were definitely uh, anytime on a period movie, you have to have that extra level of, of what things are going to have to go away. What can they paint out? What are the most important elements to to it? And you know, that's that's the house and the garage are always going to come to mind. It's the main one just because of the specifics of the layout. But everything in the movie obviously had to get. You know. And where did you find the house and garage? It's in it's in Highland Park. I mean, we looked everywhere. I looked, saying, you know, the, a, a simple little house with an auto body. We looked everywhere. You know, outside not outside of the zone, but you know, San Pedro had one that was kind of interesting. You know, yeah, all over, all over. And basically, then just shut down the block for those larger, for the larger deals. Yeah, whether, as you say, seeing both. Then's that. Then that's the next step. Yeah, it was kind of on a on a triangle, kind of a T intersection, um, which worked out nice. You weren't on the main drag, except when you were in front of the garage. But still, yes, there's a lot of neighbors to keep happy and detouring traffic, and uh, it was kind of nice having that park across the street. From my standpoint, whenever you cannot have it be completely surrounded by homeowners in a situation like that when you're trying to take something over for a few weeks that park ended up being nice because the park is where they do the fight so it just it wasn't completely surrounded by houses and then you have to paint out some modern house that's completely wrong all that kind of stuff which we didn't have to do with that intersection was there much digital work you guys think to clean stuff up i Rofa, you might have noticed even more watching it but i mean nothing jumped oh, yeah. out but oh there's 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 ton and it's fun it's it's really fun to sit and watch what they decide to do something with something. I mean, the one, the uh, the Ford plant was a mastered shot. I mean, there were, there were, I don't know, Steve, how many cars were there on that, on that conveyor belt or whatever you call it? That there, yeah, I mean, they had, that was, that was an amazing set. Yeah, they, amazing they had shot. like five lines of cars that were in various production stages at the Ford factory. But, you know, they went back like, you know, maybe 20, you know, 20 cars in each line. Yeah. And then they digitize it you know, yeah. further. I, I had but, seen I had seen what they were going to do, and and there it was. It was just it was great, great to see the the planning of that and the execution of that. So tell me more about the Ford plant. Then you went somewhere where they were making cars, but they just put in some no, 1960s a, cars. It, tell me, or is it from scratch? It, tell me that one. No, it's a vacant. Uh, it's a vacant warehouse that's uh, east of downtown, and it, it gets used quite a bit. Never to this effect, I think. I don't know, but. Uh, Again, there were so there were so many prep and strike days involved in so many of these sets um, that were needed that you they they kind of had to be places that you could own and just right off the bat you got to go find a warehouse that can look believable. But I need to go in and tell them I need to book this for a month and they're not going to laugh or say there's too much else going on or whatever it is. That place worked out great because it also had this great mezzanine which was really taken advantage of well too. Um, even just little things that you end up working with that are there. I love that the, the shot of Ford kind of ducking as he gives his big, after he gives his big speech, he kind of ducks under this crane, which just happened to be there. And it's just funny to see how that got used for a little moment. You know, things like that are great. Well, that's fascinating, Rofo. You know, and I want to talk more about those locations, but look who just joined us. Uh, special guest today, Adam <laughs> Somner, who was the first AD. Hey, Adam, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm good, Skid. Thank you, man. Cheers. <laughs> Yeah, Adam Sorry, I'm a bit late. <laughs> <laughs> no, Adam, no worries. You and I first met back when I was one of your second, second ADs on Seabiscuit back in 2003. 
Uh, you've been working nonstop as a first AD since then, and really glad uh, you could join us here today to talk about Ford v. Ferrari. So, oh, it's a pleasure, Skid. Nice to see you again. So picking it up from there from the locations, we talked about the Ford plant and what you guys were able to build inside the warehouse. Uh, Steve, special audio concerns about capturing the dialogue in those locations, or how did that work for you? Uh, at the Ford factory? Yeah, we, well, the only consideration was uh, Tracy Lutz's voice. We knew who's going to be yelling. Henry Ford the, the second. Uh, so we just actually, we used the same microphones we used in the, uh, in the cars to record Christian talking above the engines, uh, which worked out really well because he has a, a great booming voice. Uh, so that was kind of the only consideration in that, that scenario. The, you know, the production designer and the production team, you know, made sure that the factory wasn't a working factory. So it was a, you know, a set, but it was a, it was a pretty quiet set. Uh, so it worked out well. And Adam, let me ask you directly, the background in a situation like that, what kind of special training do they get to be working on the auto line? Like, What sort of prep did your team have to do to get those folks ready? There was very few things that were actually practical. There was a couple of things you could spray and there was a couple of things to weld. One of the things that the challenges with this film was, was that it was a film. So everything people were doing was actually pretend. We didn't really have the ability to really do much stuff with the cars on the pits and also in that factory situation. So a lot of it really was, uh, to, you know, to, to break any mystique, but it was like, make sure you look like you're doing the right thing. And that's what a lot of the stuff we did there. I mean, we had, a, we had a fantastic set there, which were the cars moved and stopped. But really for that sequence of Tracy Letts, it was making sure that people looked at, in, engaged in the beginning of the scene. And then when Tracy Letts starts to speak to them, that they, reacted to him in a, you know, in the most naturalistic way possible. And obviously it's a very film scene, but to make sure they laughed and looked, but not like as if they'd been trained to laugh and look at the right moment. It was one of those, <laughs> it was one of those awful scenes where everyone's got to move forward gradually and listen to the speech where you're always trying to work out how to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, and make sure it looks natural. So that was principally the issue there. I mean, there's that great steady cam shot, I think at the beginning where we follow you know, Lee Iacocca through the offices, and that was pretty cool, and establishing the space, which was a pretty cool shot, I think, actually. But is it basically one day of filming there? Did you get all that? That in one was day one day. That was one day. That was, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I, I and, it was, and, and, and three weeks of prep for one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was one of those days that because of, you know, it was on our end of our week or something, so we knew that we could go a bit later there. So in the end, you know, it was like we yeah. probably came at 10 o'clock or 10, 10.30 or something for that day, I remember, you know. But it was a lot of work, but it was one of those big days where, you know, because of the amount of people, the amount of stuff, you'd love to have a day and a quarter or a day and a yeah. third, but they don't exist. So it was one of those days that we, uh, we strapped it on a little bit, knowing that we'd have to go longer. So, One of the sets we talked about earlier was the audio garage across from uh, Ken's house, the Christian Bale house. How oh, yeah. long did you guys own that area? Like how long did you, how long, how much filming was there between those two locations? Between the house and the garage? Was that like yeah. six? I think it was more. No, I think it was, uh, it was like eight days or something. I think it was like eight, nine days. Cause it went over a two week yeah. period. We went over it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I get yeah in the house and the garage. Yeah. And the fight and yeah, all that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and breaking that down, did you guys, do the wide stuff, the stuff where we do see both and those scenes all together, or 
did you shoot it by script and occasionally need the large wide in both and then occasionally just in tighter? How did that, how do you break that down? I mean, initially it was principally broken down with, uh, you know, daylight and magic light and nightlight and then restrictive hours to shoot in the neighborhood. And then actually one of the main factors in all the work, which is, you know, what you would know is uh, the kids' hours and what hours Noah could work. So, uh, you know, it was Zen's built around what he could do to get maximize his days of doing days and then going into nights and splits and stuff. Yeah, so, but we principally finished the scene as we finished the scene. You know, they'd be, we'd, we'd, you know, we'd usually start with the scene and closer and then work ourselves wider, I think, in that sense. And did you use the actual house uh, interiors? Yeah, we did, yeah. Which was yeah. tight and uh, grumpy when it was grumpy and tight when it was tight, but it sort of worked out, you know, it was. There was talk about the house might be too small and, but this, the way it was laid well, out in relationship to the garage we, was great. But we did, but we, actually in saying that, we did build the living room again in yeah. a sense of not the initial plan, but once we got into all the yeah. coverage, when you see the sequence of um, uh, Molly and, uh, you know, his uh, Noah, his, uh, his, his son watching the, uh, the, the race stuff, although you only maybe see seven seconds of filming on it, like in films, you end up shooting the whole of their reactions for every part of the race, which, so we ended up that being too much work to do in the house. So we ended up building a small part of the house, uh, yeah. one of the airfields, didn't we, I think, yeah. And so what other locations, you guys mentioned earlier that the LAX hangar was at a different airport, but created to be LAX. Tell me more about that location. Yeah, that was in Ontario. Um, it's a hangar that gets shot quite a bit. And fortunately, again, with all of these locations, we needed so long to prep, shoot, strike that when something like that became available, there was a no brainer that that's where we do that. And we needed to be out on the runway. Those were challenges, uh, trying to get them to convince, uh, trying to convince them to let us be out on the runways. Ended up having to be on the taxiways quite a bit instead of the runways, which would have been more ideal for some of the shots, I know, as we were, as we were planning. But um, yeah, that was, that was another one where from Prep Shoot Strike, we were out there owning it for a month and a half. Adam, I want to ask you specifically about the challenges of filming races. Uh, I, I'm drawing a little bit on, um, I remember the challenges when we were doing Seabiscuit and how we had to break down the elements and combination mm -hmm. of stunts and second unit and we had a fake course and such, all to bring yeah. that together. Tell me about some of the similar challenges about filming this much detail and this much action in a race sequence. It's bitty work in the sense of as you schedule it and um, I think that as a crew member you're as surprised or as excited as an audience member when you first see it cut together because the actual process of shooting it is unexciting and rather tedious in a way, you know I mean? I mean, with this sequence, Jim, like say with Le Mans, he prevised, he prevised the whole sequence. So we were able to break down between, you know, what we would shoot. I mean, there was a, there's a small bit of second unit who went to Atlanta to shoot sort of crashes and car stuff. But principally the main unit shot all the, all the pit stuff, all the car stuff with, uh, you know, with uh, the principal actors driving cars. And then in, on top of that, the multiple options of how you shoot that. We had a, a vehicle, which was the biscuit, which we used on Sea Biscuit, which, uh, you know, um, was built um, by Alan Padelford on Sea Biscuit, And now has been over the years has been now augmented to a to a, both a, a car as well as a horse vehicle 
and you'd sit the uh, car on that and Christian Ken Miles would drive his car and we'd have remote cameras strapped to it because unlike on Seabiscuit, the speeds that we were traveling, we were never able to have a camera person attached to the vehicle that was shooting. It was always remote cameras. Well, you would go through quite a few camera people over the course of the film. That might it's not incredible. be a good approach. No, no, no. And it was, you know, you, you learn, you go the speed you're doing. So we had that. We had a, a pod vehicle, which, again, Alan then drove that vehicle when he was on top driving the car. So you could look out the front of the car and the sides of the car uh, when Ken Christian was driving it. So you do all that stuff. And then you put all the second unit elements in and then you go back onto, and then we, had, we did a very limited bit on stage of close-ups and pickups and insert stuff of the dashboard, which would make no sense and were possible to shoot on a moving car. And then you know, we had safety concerns because every time we did a scene in the pits and the cars come in fast and the cars come out fast, we had to get make sure that people were out the way and, and to try and make it feel as naturalistic again as possible with everyone hanging around the pits, but maintaining the safety, which obviously, which we are, is paramount. So I'm guessing you had a pretty large stunt crew as well then, just to be on hand for the close-ups around the car, or were they just folks who knew very no, specifically had, what no, to do? We tried to get as many extras as possible who had car experience. You know, you go, we had a few stunt people who looked good, who knew could perform well, and there were some great guys, like, you know, half a dozen maybe. Then we got good extras who A, look good, and then B, knew the cars. You rarely get both elements in, because obviously you're trying to get a look of a period of, of, a, of, of the world where people were of different size, a different shape, and a different uh, look. So with all that, we've got a good group of people, and, you know, and we, you know, we just mundanely keep keep pressing for safety keep preparing keep getting it right keep trying and you know and not taking it for granted and and i think we achieved um some of it in that sense you know with the guys uh yeah it's the same no no never as romantic as it was and unlike seabiscuit we could do as many takes as we like because they were cars although they were <laughs> although they did break down a few times you know it's one of these one of the things is you say oh, it's a big budget film well, still, I mean, it, it felt every time we were shooting the movie, we had all those cars, but we just had enough. You know, we just had enough cars. Often we'd have a car break down. We'd have to say, well, don't, I don't even see that side of the car. We'll use this car. We were quite limited because what's hard to see as you see the movie is the amount of subtle changes of the cars, of the colors, of the way they were driven, of who was using them because we had, you know, so. There is quite a history of movies about race car driving do you guys feel that to achieve what you wanted to do with ford v ferrari you had to invent new techniques or find new ways to do it steve you talked about finding the microphones that would work at those speeds was there stuff you guys had to sort of create from scratch to create this specific look for ford v ferrari on on the sound side of it i think just the the specifics and microphones but that i think that's pretty much any film you're just picking what's right for for the moment uh, at least on the on the sound side of it. So there wasn't much reinventing the wheel on this one for us, you know, because we were mainly uh, concerned about the the performance and the dialogue uh, of the film. I think I think it's funny because because visually, you know, obviously Steve looked at you know when we were shooting and prepping, we were often looking at you know Steve McQueen's Le Mans and John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix uh, as ideas how to shoot the movie and. The stylistic styles of how you do it but I, you know but equally at the same time 
with modern technology, but not only that, but modern standards of safety. The way they drove Le Mans in, when they made those movies in 1970, Le Mans was a very different race to it is now. And safety has taken over for the right in many things. So a lot of things we did now are the techniques you would use now to shoot sea biscuit, to shoot, to shoot high speed chases and vehicles, camera vehicles, Russian arms, you know, ultimate uh, remote head arm vehicles, remote cameras, so you could be close, but yeah, have speed. And then of course, as much as possible to have the uh, Ken Miles or the other characters, uh, Bandini or Scofotti, the Italians, in a moving vehicle on a, on a real moving environment. So the sun moves, the, the backgrounds move as much as possible instead of doing it completely CG. And that was one of the things Jim wanted to, to achieve. And obviously in recent years though, race car movies have been a disaster. So we were obviously not trying to look at anything of not been successful. <laughs> so we weren't trying to really look about how they did it on say the James Hunt film or the one with Stallone, whatever it was. We were trying, you know, we were, we were just trying to see, to get the good shots as Jim was doing it. But, you know, look at the good stuff, you know. And so what was it like working with Jim Mangold on this film? He's great. Yeah, no, he's very, uh, he's very strong. You know, he's a very sort of uh, big character, strong voice, strong leadership sort of thing. Yeah, he's great. No, he, he, I enjoyed very much actually working with him. You know what I mean? He's, a, he's, a, he's definitely a good filmmaker. He he's, he's, he's got doing. a good he's got a good sense of humor he's got a good wit he's very quick you yeah. know yeah he's he's definitely you know one of those guys that you look at and anything that he changes you know some directors change things in a scene mm. and it s- seems like sometimes they're just changing it to change it because they think maybe they have to and i think jim changes it and it becomes better and, yeah, and it's incremental it's incremental changes and so i think you know that's kind of inspiring to watch you, you watch it and you're like yep every every time he gives a note it makes the scene better whereas some directors give a note and you go that wasn't right you know but uh that's just not the case with jim i mean what was the atmosphere on set general was this was this a very difficult film to do i think it was uh you know when we first showed up on day one the the hardest part i think was the weather i think it was 110 degrees (laughs) yeah for most of that movie yeah it was it was hot it was windy and dusty and uh so that's what made it hard not not the actual you know the, the the material or the or the people but it was the environment at least for on my end i was sweating every day yeah. my my you know recollection of it and my recollection is always with rose colored glass i think but i reckon you know it was really hot it was hard we would but uh, the crew was excellent and um you we prepped as much as one could prep in the sense of one could be prepared for stuff and everyone reacted well as we went along and we were ba- you know we were really on schedule by a couple of days which was, which was unforced things. So it was really good. And Steve says, I mean, the first week we started with the Willow Springs race, which is when you do a movie, you will say, how do you start? Do you start with saying soft and ease in, or do you just get stuck into it and take it right now on the chin? And on this one, we said, let's start. And because of various reasons, we got stuck in and took it on the chin. And it is a fantastic sequence. The Willow, the Willow Springs of the sequence looks great to me. I looked at it when I saw the film the other day and I thought it looks fabulous. All, all around, that looked really great to me. So, but, you know, it's, it's great. It was a, I think mean, it was a really good experience, actually, all down the line. The cast were great. Jim was great. And, um, yeah, we, we battled on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody was in a good mood every day. You know, there's yeah. always something new every day that was really interesting and, yeah. and, and historically fun about, you know, the way the movie was made. So I think, I think that lent itself to, 
you know, it wasn't an easy film to make, but it was definitely a, a fun experience to mm-hmm. make. And you, and you do, you look back on it with rose colored glasses. I barely remember the heat anymore, but, but you, you do have fun yeah, making these movies. It was you, hot though. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hot that first movie. Yeah, very hot. <laughs> uh, well, I had to schedule that at a certain time. That's from my standpoint, just, just there were a lot of active locations that I needed to present that we own for long periods of prep shoots and strikes. So every one of those became rewarding when it fit with where Adam maybe wanted it or uh, where we needed to shoot it because there was no other choice. So there were lots of little, for me, just little wins of, yes, we can do that then. We're okay with it being there. We're done with (laughs) figuring that one out. Almost every location. There were so many prep shoot strikes that lasted a long time on this. No, no, it's a very good looking film. Uh, location yeah. wise i mean considering yeah. 90% of it was all shot in um in the in L- in california and la and it's well, like yeah. a, you know i mean people yeah. say it's an old fashioned movie well in a funny way it was an old fashioned movie in the, in the way they used to shoot it as well we built le mans at agadolfe and the light looks fantastic you go oh my god that looks fantastic yeah. the light and i look at it and we shot you know yeah, Pasadena, yeah. we shot you know Italy and Pas- in Pasadena and in um, down in, um, uh, in in South LA. I mean, it looked great. I mean, I thought the whole thing. Oh yeah, Shelby, Shelby's warehouse. Yeah, but I, where, I, was, I, where I, was the place? The old school. The old school. Where was that? Pomona. Pomona. The school in Pomona. Where we oh, did Pomona, the Ferrari, the Ferrari factory, and they're great. So I think it was actually yeah. fascinating to see how, as you know, you can do films in California. Sense of I was thr- I was thrilled to see how much the uh, how well the Italy scene played at a location. Oh, very good. That has gotten shot so many times over the years, and I, it's one of those things where you kind of like cringe when you're going to propose it because we got to try to do something that feels believable for mm. Italy. We have to shoot it here. Uh, it's written a certain way, but maybe you could adjust it a little bit on how they're approaching the the scene and. I've seen it twice now. I just get excited when I see him riding the bike up that, that you've seen it in so many TV shows and movies for 30 years, 40 years, and it works perfect. It's just fun to see. I mean, if people want to recognize it, great, but you, you took something that you had to choose, you had no choice, and you made it look great, and that's exciting. So tell me more about how it breaks down between what you're doing with the principals and what you shot in California and what Second Unit is doing out in Georgia. Well, well it became a mechanical process because Jim did an extens- extensive previs. You know, previs is sometimes really helpful and sometimes really unhelpful. In this case, it was extremely helpful because as a group with the second unit, we're able to, in the visual effects, go for each shot, break it down. Who's doing this? Who's doing that? What element is that? So ultimately, they went to uh, Georgia to shoot stuff that was car to car, basically car to car stuff couple of the crashes and tracking car stuff, which wasn't close enough to see uh, Ken Miles or the principal cast. So that's what they did. So they sort of, you know, they got numbers, shoot these numbers and had a previous reference, which then Jim took cut into his close-up coverage that we shot in our runway in, um, in California and then finished off in a couple of days of stage. And they did a similar thing in Willow Springs. They shot a day of Willow Springs to fill up stuff there. And they shot a couple of days of the Daytona sequence once Jim had finished his footage and listed shots for them to complete the sequence. You'd mentioned that it was a good-natured cast. Tell me more about working with Matt and Christian. I mean, this is really their movie. I imagine there's really not that many days that you don't have one or both of them on set. 
Well, when it came to working with them, you know, it, it, the the movie mostly was a, a radio mic kind of movie. Uh, a lot of wide and tights and, you know, multiple cameras and just loud, loud cars ripping by. So we had to radio mic them both and they were very easy, you know, and with the, with the high winds that we had, sometimes we had to mess with them a bunch of times, which is never, you know, easy to, to pull off and, and still have them cheer you after seeing you. But they were, uh, they were in good spirits the whole time. And uh, so for, for, on the sound side, we were able to do whatever we needed to do to make it sound, you know, as good as we could. So that was that was nice because you know you always worry uh, when you're working with new new cast you haven't worked with before you know how they'll you know take your intrusion into their private space but they were they were great every day never, never had an issue. I mean, both of them were terrific, weren't they? Christian and uh, Matt were fantastic actually to work with. I mean, Christian is extremely professional, extremely charming. I mean, actually, this film was the first time I worked with him since 1989. Or 1990, I did a couple of films when he was a child actor. And the first time I've seen him since, I did Henry V with Kenneth Branagh and a terrible, oh, a Treasure Island with Charlton Heston that he played Jim Laddie in about fucking 1989. <laughs> and the first time I saw him was when I came back in the fitting and he was absolutely charming, actually. Very nice to work with. And it was nice he was playing an Englishman for, for an Englishman who lives in America, only plays Americans. He was playing an Englishman for the first time for a long time. But he, he was terrific, as, as was Matt. Matt was, you know, was fabulous. Matt could just turn it on. He was terrific. They were terrific uh, with the crew as, as actors. And we haven't worked a lot of actors. They were very, very nice people to have around and on the set. And, were, you, and know, you could tell they were having fun at work together. You know, I mean, they were really buddy-buddy yeah. with each other. I mean, the, the relationship you saw, you know, wasn't as contemptuous in person, you know, as they were sometimes mm. in the movie. But they were having a, a blast you know, working together and, and just, you know, it's a fun movie to make. And yeah, no, that sense was, of their characters, you know. Yeah, it was terrific, wasn't it? There was never, it was, the actors were just a part of the movie. When, when the process was going on, they were with us in the process. There wasn't a them and us. It was very much, everyone was together on that film in a very sort of, it was a very sort of, you know, unified group in that way. There was no separation. And the cast were very much a part of the atmosphere, I think, and, and, the, and, the, and the good humor on the set that we had on that. Yeah, once they once they came to set, they were on set with the, with us the rest of the day. They, you know, yeah. sometimes you get cast that come do their scene and go away, and these guys just stuck around all day. And yeah, uh, you know, it was a it was a good experience all around. It was yeah. terrific. Well, as we dive into awards season, what are your thoughts about the film and and its odds, its chances of getting picked up for stuff? Good. <laughs> the odds are good. <laughs> no, I, it's. Uh, it's it's fun hearing all the reactions from people. They're really into it. It's the right time for this kind of movie. And I think the release has been great on it. And everybody wants to see it. And everybody's talking about it. It's it's. I do fun. think the studio knows, you know, that they have a special film. I think originally, if I'm not mistaken, it was supposed to come out in July. It's going to be a summer mm. yeah. a summer film. But I think once they saw it and saw the potential, they, they held it back until, you know, the award season. So I think that's kind of the idea for it. Um, because it is that you know that type of that caliber of a movie so yeah you just never know steve how many times have you seen it now because i just saw it for the first time fully a couple of days ago and i need to see it again obviously Uh, yeah i've only i've actually only seen it one time they uh they had a premiere which i had to miss i was on a film um and there was a bunch of screenings which i was in in canada for but uh, i just i saw it on opening weekend and uh in a theater with a bunch of friends we bought some tickets and I went inside. No, me too. Like I, I've been in Spain for two months, just uh, uh, living here for a bit, 
And, and I literally went on Thursday and I want to go and see it again because, you know, that initial thing where you see it, you're like, oh, that was the day the car broke uh-huh. down. That was, that was the <laughs> yeah. day. It was so, that was the day that Jim was late five minutes or whatever. You know, you... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It becomes your yearbook, you know. It's <laughs> no, all your it memories. does. It's terrible. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm quite removed from it still. I want to yeah. see it again and enjoy it as a film. It's still yeah. too close yeah. to... I, I, I got to, or, I got or, to or, watch it through my wife's eyes. I, I looked at That was good, yeah, yeah. She's, exactly. she's crying and she's, <laughs> she's like, ah, you know, tense. So that, that's where you get to watch that's it, good. you know. So my wife said, yeah, it's good. It's good. She said, it's good. I said, you sure it's good? Are you really good? <laughs> You're not just saying that, are you? Yeah, right. A scene doesn't make it into the movie. It takes about five minutes while you're watching it to kind of get over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you have any of those in there, Robert? Anyone? Uh, uh, it was so funny. Looking back on the location list, there were at least five that got shot that didn't make it in. There was some other stuff in the location list that kind of got rearranged to different things because of different reasons on scheduling and whatnot. But it's why when you hear that the first cut was three and a half hours, which I think is common knowledge at this point in all these interviews, you think that all the things will stay, but it's interesting. I mean, it's a tight, perfect, like what, what was ended up, what they ended up with. But uh, I thought maybe uh, with a three and a half hour first cut and a two and a half hour final cut that some more of the things would have, uh, would have made it in there. I don't know, but I love the final cut. Well, I'm really glad that you guys all managed to see the film before we sat down to talk about it, guys. That really uh, helped today. And uh, yeah, Adam, you were a little late. I know AD's not working. You got your own schedule out, but uh, glad you could oh, join yeah. us as well. <laughs> no, I am so, I can't apologize enough. I mean, I, I mean sorry, Steve and Robert. I oh, that's all right. You had, to, you had to push the call. It was no big deal. <laughs> all, call, all calls pushed 30 minutes. <laughs> no, literally, we had lunch. We came back and I came back and she's like, um, I'm pushing the boy, and I said, "I go fuck me." It's, it's a... <laughs> no Seriously, worries, guys. I, I got to get back out of exile and come back to you. <laughs> well, we'll see you again back on this side of the pond, Adam. Yeah, all guys, right, thanks, all, right. thanks all you guys for hopping on today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Thanks, kid. Listeners, I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. You can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where I review your ratings and comments, and Facebook, where I post photos and other behind-the-scenes materials, and podcasts below the line. Please do rate us and tell your friends. And if you're not already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On both platforms, search for Podbook. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. And finally, thank you listeners for listening. Next week, we're going to drop a special episode. It's a follow-up discussion about Ford v. Ferrari, and we're going to focus specifically on the driving stunts. Hope you enjoy. I think it's interesting to talk about the film because in a way is. It's an unfashionable film to make, isn't it? You know, you're done the, and, and again, in this day and age, when you talk about a movie like this, you go, sure, really? I mean, you know, there's very little to, um, in a way for cinema, like you talk about it and what the modern issues are and what the, 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 the modes and the fads are of culture. It's very old fashioned, but it's reassuring that it's, a, it's an old fashioned movie, but in the sense of old fashioned, it's a compliment nothing to do with any gender or, or, or politics. It's just a simple little story in that sense, which is entertaining. And I think that's a great thing for cinema. And it isn't made for the cinema. It's made for the big screen. To that point, it's, you know, it does come across that it's a very cinematic movie that's made for the theater. 
that you know it just has this different feel than a lot of movies that have made it to the theaters lately so you just you get this overwhelming sense that you know this is something that has been missing out of cinema for you know at least the last couple of years where you just want it's a big spectacle but it's a great story and it's an overall well-told story that deserves kind of the big screen big sound treatment so i think that's kind of one of those you know badges of pride that you can wear you know because we we make you know movies all the time that are great and some are bad and you know it's just that's just what it is yeah i like how often you're seeing that in the tweets um so many of them are are bothering to mention see it in the theater and maybe people are thinking oh it's a drama maybe you can just see it at home you know but no 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 they they're they're taking the time to say that and i think that's that's great it's getting rewarded for that those are my thoughts as well we've said as much here 